0: You could read my mind, love What a tale my thoughts could tell Just like an old-time movie About a ghost from a wishing well
1: Man, that has got to be one of the most beautiful songs ever written, ever recorded. You all know who this is, don't you? Well, you should, because after all, he has been in the business for over 50 years now, and he has written so many hits, so many classics, songs like The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, Rainy Day People, and Sundown. And here's the deal, folks. He's not done yet.
2: No, it's amazing when you look over the birth of this guy's career. He recorded 20 albums. He sold millions and millions of albums. He's had five hits reach number one and 13 in the top 40. And gosh, if I told you about all the other artists who've recorded his songs, we'd be here forever. But it's everybody from Elvis to Bob Dylan, even to Jane's Addiction. He is really nothing short of a legend. Let's say hi to Gordon Lightfoot. Hey, Gordon, how are you?
3: Hey, hey, I'm doing well. Thank hey, you, thank
2: you. First of all, thanks so much for the incredible music. I mean, it's just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And after 50 years of writing, recording, and touring, 50 years on the carefree highway, what is it like out there for you on the road these days?
4: Well,
3: if, if, if I stay prepared, you know, I, I, if, I, if I stay prepared... I'm fine and I always stay prepared.
2: You can't just you mean you can't just go sit on a stool and just spit these songs out and have people love you and walk off? No,
3: we have we have a show. We we do it. We have a concert. <laughs> we have a concert to do and uh, we we have a a five-piece uh, band and and it's it's really quite good at least I think it is.
1: <laughs> and you know one of the great things about your show, I mean it really is a show. People don't get just your great music. I mean, they really get a an escort through the history of rock and roll to some degree because yours is a fascinating story and you like to tell stories during your concerts, don't you?
3: Yeah, I, uh, I have a few. Uh, you know, I don't like to get repetition, uh, repetitious. Most of it is uh, sort of uh, spontaneous.
2: What are some of the stories, Gordon, that you tell that you think uh, you know, really connect with your audience?
3: Well, you know, I can give them a, a, one thing I do on a more serious side. You know, some of it's on a lighter side, but uh, I can go into a bit of a preamble about what, what happened the night that the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, sank.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating, uh, You know, the, the, the many different things that you can do, uh, the many different places you have been. And, you know, we mentioned that you really have been part of the, the fabric of rock and roll. In fact, is it true that Bob Dylan has called you his mentor?
3: Well, I, th- I think that's quite mutual. I, I you know, uh, having known him personally uh, uh, throughout really his entire career and my own as well, uh, you know, I, I, really Bob Dylan. Uh, I, I suppose without having met Bob Dylan, I would not have written "Early Morning Rain," for instance.
2: Mm. Talking with Gordon Lightfoot, and, and Gordon, you came up around the same time as Dylan and, and and then the birds. you know, a time when folk music was where it's at. And then things went electric, and when it went rock, Gordon Lightfoot really didn't. Yet you survived. You were not labeled old-timey like a lot of the other groups were. Were you tempted to go electric as well? Uh, we did that for a while. Uh, you know
3: it, uh, we, we did not go right off the, the deep end with it though we began to uh, uh, sort of uh, bring more rock, uh, folk rock uh, material into our shows and, and of course into the recording and by the time I got into the 80's I did a couple, I did an album with Dean Parks called Salute which really sort of got me to the pinnacle of uh, working with electric uh, instruments uh, that, that being myself because The people around me usually play electric instruments anyway, and, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it sort of evolved all by itself. You know, it went kind of back into a more focused kind of a stance of my last two albums, which was, uh, Waiting for You and, uh, Painter Passing Through, and, uh, but but we were happy with that because it was more simple to take a uh, situation like that onto the road, you know to get get out onto the road. We travel with uh, with 14 people only in, in our entourage, and uh, everybody's working and uh, or some of these other other bands like like we wanted to keep it simple. you know, some of these other bands have 25, 30 people traveling with them, and uh, we, I wanted to keep things like as uh, uh, simple as possible. You know, I do run and operate my own business, too. You know, I I, I have uh, uh, great help, great assistance.
1: Yeah, I think we all try to downsize to some degree as we get a little bit older. You know, Gordon, uh, and is any... Rock star, pop star, folk star has you. You have had some struggles over the years. You know, life is a journey. Yours has not always been easy. Uh, how hard has it been for you to to continue to fight your way through, to grow, to move forward, and to, and to remain in the public eye?
3: You know, I've, probably uh, to overcome. Uh, I, I overcame alcohol uh, in, in nineteen eighty two. Uh, for one thing, that that, that was a major, uh, a major happening. Uh, things changed for, much for the better after that, too. I might, I might add.
2: And Gordon, what about the uh, illness that that you said could have killed you? What what happened, and when was that?
3: Well, that was a, a really a, a, an aortic aneurysm. It was a, a something that, that actually. Uh, might have killed me, but I was in uh, quite good condition because by that time I was uh, into an, an exercise program that had been going on for 18 years. From the time that I uh, gave up alcohol, I, I, I took up uh, exercising and I made a, a science of it, and I I found how much it was improving my singing and and. Uh, uh, you know, it. it uh, I, I sometimes don't even like to talk about it because it's so hard for for some people to get themselves into a regimen like like I have because they can't do it. Uh, they haven't got the time to do it. But for me, it's like like part of part of the job.
2: And, and it's it's something that helped you also, Gordon, because m- most people don't know or didn't hear that that you had a stroke, and for a while you weren't even sure if you'd be able to play guitar again.
3: Okay, that that was a yes. I I was worried worried about that. Really, at at the time, I I was very, I was scared. It was it was frightening, frightening experience. It happened actually uh, four years after the major event, which occurred really in two thousand and two for me, where I had the aneurysm. But it happened in two thousand and six, and. Really, it took about six months to get that that back again, you know, into good working order. It it, it damaged my right hand. It it was a trans-ischemic attack. It was a TIA, which is a... a, a, The doctors told me I was lucky it wasn't a a half a centimeter to the left, or it might have affected my speech.
1: Hmm.
3: And it also happened while I was out on the road doing concerts as well, so it was quite... uh, uh, I did not miss a show, though. I had a down day fall into place by, just by
1: accident. Wow. <laughs> Certainly different things happen in our lives. So You're now in your mid-70s uh, than was happening back in the 60s and the 70s. You've always been a great songwriter, Gordon. Um, uh, where do you find your inspiration? Where do you find your material? I mean, you know, back in the day you always wrote about girls and those kind of things. What inspires you to sit down and write today?
3: Well, you know, I'm, I'm always, uh, 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 all, all of my recording obligations are, are completed, you know. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I concentrate on the shows, but what I'm writing now, I try to write a song that I, I know is going to work in, uh, on stage, and I'll work with it with the band, and we'll get it worked right up, and, uh, uh, and then all of a sudden they'll say, golly, we're going to do it on stage, and it's going to wind up in, in the Internet, and they say, well, so what, you know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, people record uh, fresh tunes, you know, they take them down right in the audience.
2: You know, the business has changed so much, Gordon. It doesn't
3: bother me. You know, it do- doesn't bother me at all either. I, you know, it's just I'm just happy to be out there.
2: You know, you know, what's neat about you too, Gordon, you've had such an amazing view of life. I mean, from the days of the Greenwich Village scene and, and, and for the 50 years since then, what, what is the takeaway? What can you tell us that you've learned about life from the journey of Gordon Lightfoot?
3: My early times hanging out in Greenwich Village, you know that that took place right back in the uh, in the mid '60s when uh, we would uh, meet up. With, you'd see a guy like Timothy Leary walking up <laughs> McDougall Avenue, you know, <laughs> and uh, or you'd, you'd be sitting next to Jack Kerouac. Uh, having, having supper, you know?
2: Incredible.
3: It was a very interesting time, and I got to meet Bob Dylan then and Phil Oaks and that, that, that whole crowd, Joan Baez, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, you know, Patrick Skye, uh, you know, Hetty West, uh,
2: so, so many great artists that were in the folk area. Um, so after such a great career, Gordon, what, what can you leave us with? What would you say is, philosophically is, is the best way to live life, the most important thing?
3: I, I, uh, 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 par- pardon me for for stumbling over that one a little bit. It's it's so obvious that I can uh, I've said it before. Stay motivated. <laughs>
2: Stay motivated. Stay I mean, motivated. Here, here it's worked for one of the, the greatest singer-songwriters in the history of rock and roll, now in his mid-70s, still out there, still touring, putting on a phenomenal show. And get some of his old music, too, folks, and just bathe in all the greatness that is Gordon Lightfoot. It's been a pleasure to get to hear his story, and uh, thanks so much, Gordon.
0: I never thought I could act this way, and I've got to say just don't get it I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone, and I just can't get it back
2: Up next, the heartache and triumph of a real-life fairy tale princess This is Growing Bolder
0: If you could read my mind, love What a tale my thoughts could tell Just like an old time movie About a ghost from a wishing well in a castle dark or a fortress strong with chains upon my feet. The story is always in if you
5: read between Support for Growing Boulder provided by
2: our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingbolder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. You're listening to Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and we're about to share with you a
1: story that's pretty incredible, one that almost reads just like a fairy tale. Yeah, I love this story. It has princesses, in fact, lots of them, but it also has some very real villains as well. It's the story of a woman and her heartbreaking struggles to pursue her passion in the face of what would be, for many, insurmountable odds.
6: I wonder if happily ever
7: are
2: real. When we're young, we all believe in fairy tales. Michelle Knight was no different. But this little Snow White grew up to be Snow White. Well, sort of. As one of the stars in the critically acclaimed award-winning musical comedy Disenchanted.
6: And just one more
2: Seems like she'd be living a fairy tale kind of life, but not exactly. But she has had some impressive dreams come true.
7: I was on the national tour of Greece with Frankie Avalon, and then I was on the national tour of Annie, and I opened Finding Nemo the musical, and then I booked Jersey Boys, and that—that's kind of been my my career pinnacle as of as of late. Um, you know, I got to be on Broadway. And now I'm working on Disenchanted, which is a passion project, I, I think. They make us look weak, like they the same, same we Do nothing more than sit around and wait for their prince to come. Look at me. Do I look like I need to wait for my prince?
2: <laughs> She's had quite a run so far, one that began almost 30 years before when she made her debut with a familiar looking reporter on the local TV news. <laughs> Michelle loved it. Performing made her feel alive, but as she grew and moved on to middle school, her life was anything but happy.
7: I was a kid that was kind of bullied, and not kind of bullied, definitely bullied. I was, you know, pushed into walls and had mean notes. I had slam books written specifically about how bad Michelle Knight smelled and just this horrible.
2: <laughs> the scars have faded, but they're still there, even to this day.
7: I feel I feel bad for that Michelle. I mean, I, that's, the only, that's the best way I can put a pin in it. Is I feel bad for those everyday battles that I had. You know, I would walk down the street to meet up with my friends to play, and they had gathered a gang to beat me up. You know, they had called me over to come play, but their play was to come beat me up. Or I had, you know, it was all kinds of stuff. and. I don't think about these things on a daily basis, but when I do, I, there's, you feel sad for, for those moments, you know, for those poor kids that are going through that. Stuff. I can't even imagine if I had to deal with this stuff in today's age with the internet, where you can't get away from it. To
2: overcome her pain, Michelle turned to performing, which eventually led her to a place that knows a lot about fairy tales. Walt Disney World was a perfect fit.
7: And I have so many opportunities to play so many different characters and, and I get to interact with these kids that, I mean, you just, you take two seconds and Dory says hi to somebody in the audience and you watch them. It's a life changer, you know? You really, you watch them feel valid and important in that moment. It's something else.
2: Michelle used her talents to empower others, to face up to any challenge, something that she would soon need to do again herself.
7: In these years that I was being bullied, by the way, um, my aunt, my favorite aunt, who set up all of these performances for me, um, got breast cancer. Then my dad's other sister got cancer, my mom's sister got breast cancer, my dad's mom had died from ovarian cancer, my dad's grandmother had died from breast and ovarian cancer and so I had genetic testing done and then I forgot about it for six weeks. And then I was at a restaurant and my doctor's office called me and said, oh, and by the way, you're BRCA1 positive. And so three weeks later, I had a double mastectomy and then a week later I had a reconstruction and my whole life has been turned upside down.
6: How do you feel now that that part's over? Relieved, but...
7: I feel like a cat pooped in my mouth. Life
2: can leave a bad taste, but Michelle knew her life was at stake, and didn't hesitate to make a courageous decision.
7: You know, it's just such a bad disease. It's so unfair because it doesn't just make you sick; it takes your spirit, and it takes you—you you know, your—it takes your life from you. Yes, but it takes your life from you, and that's. That's not what I want, you know.
2: But there would be yet another twist. You see, three years earlier, Michelle met what she hoped was her prince, fell in love, and got married.
8: And they lived happily ever after. Well, not exactly.
2: Things just didn't work out. And a couple of weeks after her surgery, their divorce was finalized.
7: And then we took a picture of ourselves out in front of the the courtroom. And he posted it on Facebook, mainly just to tell our friends and family that, hey, we're okay. You don't have to choose a side. We still, we're still friends. We see each other every weekend. Everything's okay. And I got picked up by the Huffington Post and went viral.
2: It became known as the divorce selfie. Even trended on Twitter, everybody was talking about it. And out of context, everybody aided it, felt that they were thumbing their nose at the very institution of marriage.
7: We had morning news shows calling us. We had like every radio station in town calling us. And I wasn't talking to any of them because I was on Percocet. And you (laughs) you just don't want to be giving interviews that way. But I mean, I just couldn't. It It was too much. That was crazy. There was one gentleman who wrote an article that was just I mean, it said the most vile things about what he wanted to do with our divorce selfie. It was really funny, actually, because in, in his diatribe, he wrote, um, I mean, you're giving yourself applause for what? It's not like you just beat cancer.
2: Oh, but she had. And that, and all of her experiences, have given her a rare and heartfelt insight.
7: I mean, cancer is not a blessing, but... Realizing the world around you is a beautiful thing, and the people around you deserve kindness, and that's a beautiful thing. However it takes you to get there, I hope it's not cancer.
2: She learned that truly loving life only happens when you truly live it.
7: I'm trying to absorb every millisecond. What I've learned is to make every moment an event, finding the joy in absolutely every little silly thing, and laughing at everything that happens in life because really honestly the, my token statement now is it's not cancer so you know if it's if i get a flat tire it's not cancer
2: michelle knight has overcome so much slayed so many dragons maybe she is living a fairy tale just maybe this is one woman whose story will end happily ever after
7: Outside of that, I really just want to find a way to continue to help people, um, continue to perform as I can and sing and, and um, be surrounded by the people that I love and for a
6: long, long time.
1: I'm constantly amazed at the battle between the anti-aging advocates and the aging sucks just accept it proponents. Both are far from reality and equally damaging. It's either a pie in the sky pursuit of unachievable immortality or a demoralizing acceptance of the unalterable fact of physiological decline. This is really an easy one folks. There is a large and malleable middle ground that offers both truth and optimism. I often say that age isn't a disease, it's an opportunity. It would be more accurate to say that age isn't a disease unless we believe it to be, in which case it will most assuredly become one. Likewise age isn't an opportunity unless we believe it to be. Whether we want it or not, whether we decide to wield it or not, we have the power to decide if growing older is a disease or it's an opportunity. The key is not to mourn what's lost, but to celebrate what remains. To not identify with loss and limitation, but to embrace passion and possibility. To accept the reality of our mortality, but reject the lies of our ageist culture. We are not going to defeat aging, but we can turn it into one hell of a ride.
2: He spent 10 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. New evidence got him out, but what would he do with his new life? That's next on Growing Boulder.
5: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
2: The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at GrowingBoulder.com.
1: You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer. And our next guest is in the aftermath of a nightmare, but he is building a future for himself. He was a freshman in college when he was convicted of second-degree murder for the beating and strangling death of a newspaper editor. At 19 years old, he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Now, there was no physical evidence and no motive. His conviction was based upon two witnesses who later admitted they didn't tell the truth and recanted their testimony. So, after serving near 10 years in prison he was released now 30 years old he's putting his life back together he's written a great new book called stronger faster smarter a guide to your most powerful body let's welcome ryan ferguson hey ryan how are you today
9: I am great, Mark. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, we're thrilled to have you. And while you were in prison, I know you had to do something to keep your mind and body sharp. So you pretty much developed your own plan. And as I understand it, you did that after a final word from your dad before you were locked up.
9: Yes, sir. Uh, In my first week of being incarcerated, my father told me, "Son, I will do everything I can to help prove your innocence and protect you, but I cannot be there in there with you. And he told me to do everything I could to make myself stronger, faster, and smarter, hence the title of the book. And uh, for 10 years, that's all I did. I worked on becoming, you know, stronger physically and mentally, uh, faster and smarter, and protecting myself.
1: You know, on Growing Bolder, we talk a lot about accommodation. You know, we all faced with our own different issues. And where there uh-huh. is a will, there is a way. And I imagine you had uh, to make some accommodations while you were imprisoned. Uh, what kind of workouts did you do? What kind of food were you able to eat?
9: the food was horrendous. Um, you're never going to get the right nutrients. It's basically a starchy meal every day. You're not getting enough to eat, period, it's even with what you can buy there, which is mostly junk food, if anything. And the workout, you don't have any equipment uh, in the county jail. And then when you go to prison, they have equipment, but it's pretty rudimentary. So That's kind of, as you were alluding to earlier, I looked at the reality that I was in and I realized I don't have the things that I want to become the best I can be physically and mentally. But I'm not going to let that stop me from trying hard every day and utilizing exactly what I have, the little amounts of food, the few little cartons of milk I'll get, or the the opportunity to do pull-ups on stairs or curls with a a coffee jug. So uh, there are no excuses.
1: You know, we we love that message. We talk a lot about ordinary people who are able to build extraordinary lives because they're really the best role models of all. You have done, you have become what you are, you know, based upon 10 years of work inside a prison where you couldn't do everything you wanted. And, and I've seen pictures of you, man. You are ripped.
9: Oh, <laughs> thank you, sir. And that just, that just goes to showing that if you put your mind to something, you believe that you can accomplish something – you know, you don't have to be a victim of your circumstances. You can work through it. You can find a way. And I think all successful people have acknowledged that there are things they cannot change and that there are things that they, they can continue to change and they, they accept that difference and they work on the things that they have control over. And for me, that was my mind and my body. That's all I had. They'd taken everything else from me and I didn't want to give them that. So I worked on it daily and, uh, You know, whether you're in there or you're out here, that's something you can do, and it'll improve your life by little increments every day. There's no excuses not to do it.
1: That is a powerful message, and obviously the book, which is called A Guide to Your Most Powerful Body. It's Stronger, Faster, Smarter, A Guide to Your Most Powerful Body. has a lot of great practical and important information about fitness and nutrition. But even more than that, Ryan, it is, as you mentioned, about pushing through difficulties no matter what they might be. Is that, in your estimation, the overall message of the book? Is that what you were trying to say?
9: It is. I mean, that's my overall message in the book, in life, what I'm doing on on facebook on freed ryan ferguson and com. i mean it's about showing people that we can do anything we want with ourselves you know it's just a mentality it's just this awareness of knowing that life can never get us down if we choose not to let it get us down and that we can be champions no matter what so i think that's uh, an important message because we all have our own difficulties we all have our own struggles no one's You know, it's not fair to say that one's worse than another. But the reality is that we, we can continue to, I guess, beat those realities, beat those things that are holding us back. And, uh, and that's what I think the beauty of life is. If we choose to, to do that, we can do anything.
1: Folks, we're talking to Ryan Ferguson, who is now 30 years old, literally spent his entire 20s uh, in prison after he was wrongly convicted of a crime. You mentioned Facebook a minute ago, Ryan, and I know in many ways social media and Facebook in particular was instrumental in your release, and yet you never spent a day on Facebook until your release, and not only that, you never sent a text, you never had a smartphone. It was a different world when you got out. Was it, was it exciting or was it difficult?
8: It's
9: both exciting and difficult. It continues to be difficult for me. Coincidentally, I ended up speaking at Facebook headquarters before I even knew how to use Facebook. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's amazing, but you know, because of some incredible people, we were able to get seventy thousand supporters, and you know, those people are still out there. They're still supporting my family and I, and they're supporting wrongful convictions. So, being able to communicate with them and hopefully help other people. Is, is worth the effort of trying to figure these, these platforms out on a daily basis. And, uh, I mean, they are incredible. It's, it's been an uphill battle for sure. But the, the impact it can have on our lives and society, if we choose to use these platforms in the right way, can be incredible.
1: Obviously, you can't get back ten years of your life, and, and, and you know, for many people, twenties are where it's at. But you have filed a, a a federal civil rights lawsuit seeking damages against the Columbia, Missouri Police Department and a prosecutor there who is now a, a judge. Uh, as you move forward with that, Ryan, is it possible to 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 not be bitter, or will you always harbor a bit of bitterness over what occurred?
9: You know, I, I will always harbor bitterness. They took my twenties, and I believe they they did it knowing that I was innocent. Um, You know, the authorities are responsible for this. There needs to be accountability. There is no accountability set up in our legal system. So it's unfortunate, but I'm using that, that anger and that resentment I have, this negative energy, I'm turning it into positive action by hopefully helping other people and spreading awareness and making my families and my life better. So it's, again, it's what we choose to do with the realities that we're, we're faced with and For years i let that negative energy consume me and make me worse as a human being but i've turned that around and i think that's a a powerful message which hopefully i'll be able to get out in my next book but um you know we can use negative energy for positive action and uh and one of the best ways to do it is through health and fitness and uh and helping other people.
1: Well, that is a great takeaway, folks, and let's leave it there. The book is called Stronger, Faster, Smarter, A Guide to Your Most Powerful Body. It's written by Ryan Ferguson, a 30-year-old guy who is now out. He's back on the street, and he's got some big things ahead. He's hit the ground running. He is working on behalf of those who, like him, have been wrongly convicted. He is trying to make us all healthier, and he is delivering the message that it's never too late and that no obstacle is too much to overcome. So uh, pick up the book. Uh, It's a great read. Reed and Ryan, we certainly appreciate your time. Up next, he's ninety-four and celebrates his birthday by riding his bike a hundred miles. You'll meet a longevity superhero on Growing Boulder.
5: Support for Growing Boulder provided by.
2: Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures.
6: My guard stood hard when abstract ritz, too noble length
2: This is growing bolder I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton and I have a feeling that if you hang with us for the next few minutes we are about to blow your mind You've heard people say that these days 60s the new 40 I think they got it all wrong. Soon, 90 may be the new 40. And you're about to hear from a guy who sure is making it seem that it's that way right now.
1: Yeah, he is 94, or at least we think so. We're going to have to confirm that, Bill, because he doesn't sound anywhere like that. You know how he celebrates his birthday every year? Cake he... and candles? Uh, well, maybe. But in addition to that, he rides a bike 100 miles. In his mid-90s, he is a highly competitive athlete, a veteran of the National Senior Games who has won gold 24 times what? and counting. He is one of the top role models in the entire world for what is possible in all of our lives with a little bit of luck and, of course, making the right lifestyle choices. Let's meet one of the most amazing guys on planet Earth, the one and only Larry Johnson. Hey, Larry, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I- I'm doing great. Let me make sure that, that, that Bill didn't get this wrong because he put the notes together. Was it a typo? Are you actually 94 or are you 49. <laughs> i'm actually ninety four I'm sorry to say oh man we're 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 not sorry to hear it because what you've done is just amazing well, you got to keep moving
2: Larry, are you surprised when you know you say oh boy ninety four do you mean that you can't believe that that many years have gone by or i mean do you feel like a ninety four year old
4: No, I don't feel like a ninety four year old but I can't believe that many years have gone by. When I was a kid, I thought, boy, if I ever lived to the year 2000, I'll really be lucky because most of the people or adults around me never lived that long, and so that would have made me 80. And so I thought,
1: well, I guess. I guess I made it. <laughs> well, you know, we can't deny, uh, Larry, that maybe some luck was involved, but it's got to be more than that. It's got to be your lifestyle. Uh, why do you think that you are 94 and not only still here, but talking on the radio to a couple of guys across country and inspiring people all over the country?
4: Well, I, I had, my mother lived to 97, but her last three or four years were not very pleasant. She was in a nursing home and Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that. So uh, that was uh, not very well. But uh, I've, but up to that time, she was fairly active. So I think I got a lot of good uh, good genes from her. My dad, uh, who grew up as a farmer and uh, looked around at the other people that were older than he was, and he said, "Anybody that's seventy-two years old is no damn good." And so. Uh, he predicted his death, and he died at seventy-two with a heart attack. So I didn't get good genes from him, I don't think. But I got them from my mother.
2: Boy, and talk about genes! A ninety-four-year-old who can ride a hundred miles on his—well, no, ber- that's
4: on a spin bicycle.
2: Hey, Larry, a
4: hundred miles is a hundred miles. Well, <laughs> it's not out—it's not outside in the wind and all—all all that sort of thing, but. Uh, yeah, we've done that every year. For this will be the fifth year. I've, this would be the I've done four, and the fifth year is coming up. So uh, we're all uh, ready at the gym to take take this on. So uh, I've got a good following there, and they all cheer me on. Lots of young ladies there too. So oh, that, that works fine.
1: Yeah, young ladies like an old guy that's in shape. Uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit. Tell us a little bit about the senior games. You know, what are your events, and what does it do to, for you to hang out with other people uh, your age and younger that that are into taking care of themselves?
4: Well, my, I, I've been, I, I missed last, last two years ago in Cleveland, but prior to that, I've been to every one. I started—the first year I went as an observer, and the next year I went as a runner. For a couple of years I did that, a couple of events I did that, and then I learned to swim a little better, and so I did running and triathlons, and then when I—the uh, pools around here get to, are too cold, so I quit swimming, so I, now I'm a cyclist. So I do the four cycling events in the senior, senior games, so— uh, and uh, I guess a couple of events ago, uh, a couple of games ago, uh, there were six signed up that are over ninety. And uh, when we got there, only three showed up, and so and one of them only did the five k. So, uh, but I've had lots of fun of those guys, and uh, they were happy when I couldn't make the Cleveland. They, they <laughs> emails and said, "Sorry, you can't make it, but we're having fun up up in Cleveland." So. Uh, Hey Larry, uh, I I did a crazy thing and I sort of fractured my hip a little bit, but <laughs> was, I fractured it enough that I couldn't go. I I thought I could, but I couldn't stand on one foot, so I decided I better not go. You know, that's a th- that's I, I had a th- paid my dues and I had hotel reservations, but. <laughs> You know, uh, a, bro- I didn't make it. A,
2: a broken hip, Larry, is something that a lot of people, as they well, age, it never. Was, it
4: wasn't really a broken hip; it was a socket. And the, the femur and the socket were, and the bone were okay, but it, it was a socket that had a, some cracks in it. So it was really kind of a crack in the pelvis. It really wasn't in the in the hip side. It was on the hip side, but it wasn't the femur or the Big bone, and a big yes. knob on the end of it. that was all. That was all good.
2: So. Well, Larry, we, before we let you go, we'd we'd yeah. be amiss if we didn't take advantage of your. You're your, such an inspiring person. Can you like let, preach from the the summit of 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 Mount Johnson and, and give us some of that Larry Johnson wisdom about staying active and staying vibrant and and what life is really all about?
4: Well. Uh... When my two boys—I had four kids, and when my two boys kind of left home, uh, we we did the usual thing, softball, and we did skiing, and we did uh, a little bit of football, not much. But when they left home, I decided I had to do—I had to get more active. I was getting a little bit overweight, maybe two or three pounds, but enough to worry me. And so I started uh, in 1972, uh, Frank Shorter— Won the, uh, the marathon in in Munich, and that started the running boom in this country. And I ran my first marathon in '73, and since then I've, like I say, I've done 24 or five, something like that. I did Boston in 1987. I qualified for that one, and uh, so I've uh, done a, been a ski patroller in a local ski area for. I did that for 30 years and decided I didn't like to fill out the paperwork every year to do requalifying, lift evac, and first aid and all that sort of stuff. So I quit that after 30 years. And uh, but now I've got to be pretty much of a gym rat. So.
2: Uh. Well, Larry, you're such an inspiration, to all of us. One of the most successful, decorated athletes in the world over the age of ninety. Larry Johnson, you're the real deal. You're you're a superhero of of aging, and it's great to to hear to. And hopefully, we'll talk to you when you turn ninety five and ride another hundred miles. The great Larry Johnson. Up next, what happened to a present-day woman named Amelia Earhart when she tried to recreate the deadly flight that took the life of her namesake? This is Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at slash podcasts. You are listening to the Growing Boulder Radio Show. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and sometimes it's hard to find your path in life. Other times, you have no doubt as to your destiny. Our next guest is one who has found her purpose, and she is off to a spectacular start. She is a seeker of all things adventurous and has found her passion helping other young women take to the sky.
1: Yeah, it is amazing the path we traveled. Just a few years ago, she was a television personality in Denver who had this crazy dream, an unquenchable urge, really, crazy as it sounded, to recreate the flight of Amelia Earhart. Now, if you remember, the original flight didn't go that well. So why would this young woman feel so driven to do something so risky? Maybe it starts with her name. Let's say hello to Amelia Rose Earhart. Hey, Amelia, how are you?
8: Hey, doing great. I'm so excited to be on the show and talk about flight.
1: First of all, the obvious question, I'm sure you're sick of it, but is that in fact your real name, Amelia Rose Earhart? And if so, did your parents explain why? (laughs)
8: It absolutely is my real name. And, of course, there is a good story behind it, but it all starts with the fact that I'm not related to Amelia. Uh (laughs) We share the same last name. And so my mom and dad had an opportunity to name me after somebody incredibly inspirational and passionate. You know, she was really going for big things back in the 1930s. And my mom also says that she wanted to give me a name that nobody would ever forget. And that definitely worked.
2: So when that's your name, when you roll out of the womb with that tag, do you feel you have no choice but to do something, you know, really big along the same lines?
8: (laughs) Yeah, you know, it goes back and forth. But in the end, uh, I was about 21 years old, and I said to myself, I either have to figure out if I can fall in love with flying and just go all in, or, you know, maybe I'm afraid of heights. Maybe I don't even like airplanes. I didn't know. And so I waited a while, took that first lesson, and from then on I was hooked, and I've been flying for about 10 years.
1: So, one thing leads to another, as it always does, and you started the Amelia Project. Tell us what that is.
8: So, the Amelia Project was my goal to symbolically complete the flight that Amelia Earhart set out to accomplish in 1937. She wanted to fly essentially around the equator in a Lockheed Electra 10E, which was a twin engine, you know, beautiful, state of the art aircraft at that time, and she wanted to fly around the whole world. The Amelia Project was my way as a namesake of honoring her, showing other young women that adventure is still out there, it is possible, and going after your goals can be really exciting. And so, luckily, on June 26th, I departed, flew 28,000 miles around the world through 14 countries, 80% of the flight was over water, and on July 11th, I completed the flight, becoming the youngest woman to ever fly around the world in a single-engine airplane.
2: You know, you, I mean, Amelia Earhart, she was like a, she had hour after hour of time in aircraft. She was a veteran flyer. You, not so much. Were you worried you might recreate that flight a little too closely?
8: You know, I had an incredible team of people helping me plan this flight. So I went through, learned how to fly the airplane, built up my hours, got my instrument rating, and trained as much as I possibly could to eliminate as many of the variables as I I could. Because in flying... There are only certain things that we control. We can't control the weather, but we can control when we fly, what time of the year, what weather patterns we can anticipate. So as someone who was studying to be a meteorologist at the time, as somebody who was absolutely in love with, you know, the concept of STEM education and showing other young girls what was possible, I just dove in and learned as much as I could. And thank goodness it all went really well. And we didn't have any close calls during the flight, but it certainly was an adventure.
1: It was obviously incredibly successful, mission accomplished. You are doing what you set out to do in terms of inspiring other young women to know that anything is possible. Is it an adventure, Amelia, that might trap you in the sense that it would be difficult to move on to what's next? Because we get the idea that there's always going to be a what's next for you.
8: You know, that's a good question, and that's that's the most common question. Now that the flight is done, what's next? And And I'll be totally honest, after you get back from something that big, whether it's summoning Everest or, you know, flying around the world, you get home and there's a little bit of a lull. You kind of go, well, how am I ever going to top this? How can I ever feel as good as I did when I accomplished that, you know, goal that took a year and a half to complete? And so I took a step back and and I looked at my foundation, which is the Fly with Amelia Foundation, and we put young women, 16 to 18, through flight school And so my new goal became flight for education, getting people who typically don't have access to aircraft up with small airplanes, get them in the cockpit, get them excited about how to, you know, slowly raise money for those goals that you have. And so now the what's next is flying around the country on an educational mission, taking that airplane to schools and small airports where people can really get in touch with it firsthand. But yeah, it's been tough to come back, but You know, now that I can say that I'm an earth rounder, that's a pretty cool feeling.
2: (laughs) We're talking with Amelia Rose Earhart, who stunned the world and everybody when she took to the skies like her namesake, Amelia Earhart, and completed the flight that Amelia did not way back in the 1930s. And I'm sure you were like a sponge trying to learn as much as you could about her. Uh, Do you have any theories on on what went wrong or or what do you feel became of her?
8: You know, it, it was pretty incredible what Amelia was trying to pull off. Back in 1937, she was using celestial navigation, along with her navigator, Fred Noonan. She was using a star, essentially, and a point on the horizon to triangulate her location in space, and that's how she navigated. So navigationally, uh, from what I've read and all the research that I've done and other groups that I've sort of teamed up with through the years, it sounds like the weather was pretty bad when she departed from Papua New Guinea, and it was probably very difficult to find Holland Island, which is where she intended to land. So I haven't latched on to one theory in particular because they focus on her death, what I try to focus on the pa- is the passion and the inspiration behind what she was still in control of while she was living, which was getting out there and just being really bold.
1: Amelia, you are a very inspirational young woman, and, and I know this is about getting women in the air, but, but I know it's more than that. Give us the takeaway. Give us the big picture. Take this out of the flight context and tell us what your message is when you talk to people about life in general.
8: You know, there's a lot of different messages and, and metaphors through flight that I've really come to understand, and there's there's two I want to share with you. The first one is don't quit your daydream. You know, whenever I would sit at work, I would sit at the TV station or be out doing something else, my daydream would always take me to flying and getting me up in that cockpit and seeing the world in different ways. And so that's what I try to tell people. Wherever your daydream takes you, that's probably one of the things that you're meant to accomplish in this life. So don't quit your daydream. And then the second came from my dad. He asked me the most poignant question of the entire flight before I left. He said, honey, after you fly around the world, do you think the world will feel like a bigger or a smaller place? And I thought, gosh, that is a wonderful question. And when I came back, of course, you know, once you fly around the world, it feels like a much, much smaller place. But now I know that the world is so much bigger in terms of all the beauty and the potential that's out there, no matter what you want to do.
2: She is one of the most motivating and inspiring people you'll ever want to meet. Make sure to look her up online and follow the exploits because I'm sure there is much, much more to come from Amelia Rose Earhart. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for now, but Growing Boulder does not stop here. Follow us online at growingbolder.com and check out our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. And do you receive Growing Boulder magazine? Oh, you should. It's filled with hope, inspiration, and possibility, and available to you at growingbolder.com as well.
1: And how about a quick takeaway from today's program? You know, folks, whether you are a legendary musician, an up and coming actress, a man who's been wrongly convicted of murder, or someone named <laughs> Amelia Earhart, it is persistence that makes dreams come true. Persistence that will help you triumph against whatever odds you face. And that is what we call Growing Bolder.
5: Growing Bolder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nanis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.
6: Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire and flaming road Using ideas as my maps We'll meet on edges soon Said I proud heated brow Ah, but I, I was so much old